Well, good morning and welcome to Watermark Community Church. My name is John Elmore. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I want to give a, a welcome to any guests who are visiting us, exploring the faith or the church. Welcome. And if anybody's here already in advance for the Church Leaders Conference, raise up your hand. Where are you at? Anybody here in advance? Okay. Welcome here. There's about 2,997 more that are going to be here tomorrow. So we're excited to host. Hey, today we are concluding the letter of 1 Peter, which honestly like makes me super sad. I've like loved this journey and seen the richness of the letter and everything therein. And so we're in chapter five today in the last of that passage. I'm seriously like, where's 1 Peter six or seven? Like, no, there's no more. And what you're gonna see in the word today is that you have an enemy. If you were in Christ, you have a sworn enemy. He hates you. And his desire is to incite fear and to inflict suffering. So I'll be your motivational speaker for today. It's like, <laughs> dude, serious? But it's incredible. Because despite that and despite him, we know, as John writes, one of Peter's contemporaries, one of his fellow apostles, he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so he has overcome Satan and conquered him. And so today, I believe you're gonna find great encouragement in and as Satan incites that fear and as he inflicts suffering because Jesus reigns. And so if you would, turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're gonna read verses 6 through the conclusion. And if, it's, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen here for you now. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, who they believe, theologians believe this is Silas that traveled with Paul throughout the books, book of Acts. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, we believe that this was the church in Rome where Peter was writing from, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is Mark from which we get the gospel of Mark. This is where Mark got his apostolic authority to write that gospel account as he heard and sat and lived with Peter and heard the firsthand account of everything Jesus said and did and the miracles that they beheld. And so Mark wrote that. Greet one another with the kiss of love. In many cultures, this is still the case. They'll greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, not so much here in America. Uh, that might be a little too much for somebody. But it's more than a handshake. You know, I, I, uh, when you greet someone, you can give them a hug. It shows affection. But maybe 
If it's like single guy to single girl, maybe you go side hug instead of full on. That might be, you might know what I'm talking about. Some of the girls are like, amen. (laughs) Preach it. And then it says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a great concluding word as Peter cyclically talks about suffering and then he says, peace. No matter your affliction, your persecution, your suffering, the threats of the enemy, peace. The peace to all of you who are in Christ. So something that I do, and and Tia as well, when we're going through a passage, we'll have different iterations of an outline. And so I was probably on like my fourth outline this week for this passage uh, because it's just like you just wrestle with it and it's not quite right. But I thought I had it. I, I literally on Thursday, I'm like, oh, this is it. I sent it to the elders even. I'm like, as I do weekly, I'm like, okay, here it is. And then Thursday afternoon, I feel like the Lord was like, opened my eyes to something in the text. I was like, oh my goodness. Reworked the outline, sent it back to the elders. I'm like, I've got to make this change. And this took zero wordsmithing of my part. Like it's just right there in the verse. This is incredible. And so here it is. It's going to be on the screen. When life is hard, H-A-R-D. When life is hard, remember, one, humble yourself. That's the H. The A, anxieties are cast. R, resist in faith. And then D, dominion of God. When life is hard, humble yourself. Anxieties are cast. Resist in faith and dominion of God. So the first point, humble yourself. Verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's an idiom in the English language that's like, hey, I was in the right place at the right time, which means, oh man, what luck, what happenstance, what incredible, you know, just generosity from the universe that I would be in the right place at the right time. It's nonsense. Here in the scriptures, it says the right place is under the mighty hand of God, that we would place ourselves, that is the place to be, that we would get there by humbling ourselves and be under the mighty hand of God And then the right time is his timing. He says, and at the proper time, which is his time, he will exalt you. We were hiking in Colorado one summer. Laura's grandfather had a place there, and so we go to visit him. And we go up this, it's called Bear Mountain, because at the the top of the mountain, there's a cave, uh, which is probably just family legend that it was a bear cave. But nonetheless, you hike up to this mountain, there's a cave that overlooks this, this cliff that just is an expanse of mountains. So it's a, it's a great hike. We go up the mountain. Our kids are three, five, and seven. They can make it up because they got a lot of energy. Big breakfast. We get the top, snap the family photo. And we're like, okay, time to go down, kids. And Judd, our three-year-old, is like, no, I'm, no. I, I can't remember in his three-year-old language, but he's like, I'm not walking. I can't, I can't walk. I'm like, no, it's, it's downhill. You know, gravity will help. He's like, no. And I had this like 1970s uh, kid backpack that had like the leg holes in it. And I'm like, oh man, okay. You know, it's like aluminum poles. And I'm like, here, sit in this. And he's like getting his legs through. And then I'm like, okay, I mean, I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I get one shoulder in. I mean, at this point, he's like leaning backwards, another one on. I'm like, okay, we're good. All right, pennies five, hills seven. I'm like, come on, here we go. Laura's got all the gear, the picnic, whatever. And we're walking down the mountain. And then all of a sudden I feel this like, I'm like, what, what, Penny? And she's like, I can't go anymore. I'm like, well, no, you got to go more because it's like two more miles down the mountain. She's like, I can't. I'm like, 
ah, man, they call this Bear Mountain. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. We can't stay here. We don't have a tent. I'm like, all right, all right, here. Here, get in front of me, get in front of me. All right. Put her on my shoulders. Judd, at this point, has a really bad view. Uh, (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I'm like, all right, here we go. Hold on tight. Walking down the mountain, walking down the mountain. Dad, I can't go. I can't go anymore. Hill, he's seven. I'm like, buddy, you got to. You're seven years old. Be a big boy. We got to get down this mountain. Come on. And he's like, I can't. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> All right. Okay, man. Hey, climb up on my legs. At this point, I look like Cirque du Soleil. Hill is like, <laughs> I'm like you got to squeeze your legs tight. I can't hold you. So Penny at this point, I'm no longer holding her, just like squeezing her legs. I'm like, Going down the mountain, I'm like, this is so stupid. I can't believe this. Why did we take this hike? And then as I'm going, I'm like, oh, and like almost get pulled back. I'm like, stop it. And as, as I say that, I feel bark go down my back of my neck. I'm like, what in the world? And instantaneously, Penny starts screaming. Well, I had walked her into a dead cedar tree. I had my hat on. I couldn't see anything. And she like, Gah! like the fact that she has her sight is straight up a miracle. So, total dad fail, and God will never fail you. It's what he says in his scriptures. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that we would put ourselves in his care and that he would exalt us in the proper time. Our job is to humble ourselves. His job is to carry us under his hand and exalt us in the proper time. And the the phrase mighty hand is a throwback to Exodus, which is the refrain as the Israelites were enslaved to the nation of Egypt, but that by a mighty hand, God brought down the plagues. By a mighty hand, he led them out of Egypt. By a mighty hand, he provided them in the wanderings. And by a mighty hand, brought them into the promised land. Peter's like, hey, by humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That's where you want to be. He, he has shown himself faithful. And he's got a time that he's going to exalt you. But I think a lot of us aren't, we're not, we're not tugging on God's shirt. We're like, man, you saved me from hell, but I got it from here. Like, I'm, I'm smart enough. I got the degree. I got the job. I got the money. I got the girl. Like, I don't, I don't need you. And he's like, man, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, the therefore is pointing back to where it says, God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. That we would tug on God and be like, hey, I need your help. I need your help here. I can't do anything apart from you. And then God's part is to exalt us. Which is like, okay, good, man, because I need a raise at work. I need a better promotion. I need to get into this sorority. I need, like, you know, to be top in my class, and he's going to exalt me. Awesome. You said it in the scriptures. No, that's not what it is. Contextually, when it says exalt us, this whole passage is talking about suffering. Suffering. Not our prosperity, but our perseverance in adversity, that one day in our suffering, he's going to exalt us. This is like Psalm 40 where David writes, I cried to the Lord out of the miry pit and he put my feet upon a rock. He lifted me out where I was just gonna die in my suffering. He lifted me out and set my feet upon a rock. I'll sing a new song to the Lord. That's the exalting that's taking place. He's like, I know you're suffering. And know in your life you're suffering. Humble yourselves. He opposes the proud. And at the proper time, God's going to exalt you. He's going to lift you out of that pit. That's the H, humble yourself. The A, anxieties are cast. 
Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen, listen. Anxieties and worries are no surprise to God. And he's not mad at you if you have them. He just is saying that's a weight that you were never meant to carry. You got up this mountain and now I need to carry you down. I know you're anxious. Talk on my shirt. Cast those anxieties to me because I care for you. There's, there's a caring there. So our anxieties are cast. It's a gift. And so worry is just an indicator that you're trusting in self and not God. That's all it is. He's not like, oh, you worry, warp, frustrated. Why can't you just? He's like, hey, just let that worry be an indicator that what, what and who you are trusting in is yourself rather than me. And so you need to cast those anxieties upon me like a light on your dash in your car. Here it is said another way. Worry is the symptom of the sickness. And then prayer is the prescription. God says, cast those anxieties. We've got this, this worry. And he's like, hey, that's, that's the symptom. Now cast it. Prayer is the prescription. The, the way by which you cast is through prayer. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Not any one thing. I know that you are, but don't be, because in prayer and petition, present your request to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He's like, you give me your pressures, I give you my peace. That's what we do. You give pressures, I give peace. Cast those anxieties to me. You're not meant to carry that. It says in... Well, hold on. Let me say something. Some of you are like, oh, I don't, I don't struggle with worry. I don't worry about things. I just get stuff done. I'm in control. I'll just put on some extra hours. I'll crank it out. GSD, man, I'll get it done. Get stuff done. And, and that's just activating on worry. There's another word for it. It's workaholism. Now, what I'm not saying is to be lazy. That would be the other end of the spectrum. But what God calls us to is to put in faithful work in that he gives the result. It's Psalm 127, verse 2, where he says, In vain you rise early and stay up late, eating the bread of anxious, cast your anxieties, anxious toil. For God gives to his beloved even while they sleep, is the NET translation. That's beautiful. In Luke 12, Jesus says, it's like Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body. And specifically right here, Satan, he's able to do that through suffering. He can inflict suffering even unto death. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear, those, fear he who can cast body and soul into hell. He's like, hey, fear God and nothing else. That's who you should be fearing right now and nothing else. And then he, and then he talks about sparrows. And he says, are not, are not a few sparrows sold for this and that amount, which is super weird that they were selling sparrows at that point in the time. But nonetheless... And then he says, God even knows the hairs, the number of hairs on your head. And it's not because God is particularly interested in hair. What he's saying is, hey, do you know how many hairs are on your head? No, you don't. Well, guess what? God does. Do you know how many freckles you have? No. Well, guess what? God does. Do you know how many cancerous cells are in your body? No, I don't, but I know I have cancer. Well, God does. He knows where they are. 
Do you know how much, and, and so it doesn't matter how much is in your bank account or what's going on with your car or that your rent is overdue or that you're a friend group. God's like, I know, I know you more than you know you. So you don't have to worry, like I got you. That's my job because I care for you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this is the means by which we humble ourselves. When it says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the participle that ends in I-N-G is like, and this is how you do it. Humble yourselves, casting your anxieties upon him. And so follow this logic with me. If you're worrying, you're not casting. If you're worrying, you're not casting your anxieties. If you're not casting, then the scripture right here says, you're not being humble. He says, be humble by casting. So if you're not casting, you're not being humble. If you're not humble, verse five says that you're being prideful. And God says in our pride, he opposes the proud. And I, I mean, if that's not motivation enough to cast your anxieties, we don't want God opposing us. Like in our pride, like, no, I've got this. He's like, no, you don't. But come back when you are ready. Because it's my job to carry that. And the reasons why we can cast our anxieties upon him is because he cares for us. He says right there, he cares for us. He knows you and he cares for you. He loves you. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. He knows the pressures that are upon you in your suffering, in the fear. And so it goes on in Luke 12 and Jesus says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And if you can't do that one simple thing, then why are you worried about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, what you'll drink, where you'll live, who you'll date, where your job will come from, how to make, it's like you can't do anything by worrying about those things. Instead, he says, the world chases after all these things. The world, he says, the nations who don't have God, they're like, well, I guess it's up to me. Like nobody else, I mean, God doesn't exist or God's these pagan whoever. And so it's up to me. So he says, the, the nations chase after all these things, but not so with you. Your father knows that you need them. And so his answer is, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These things will be added to you. We cast the anxieties, we run after God knowing that he is gonna run down our problems and provide for us. But listen, I think, I think a lot of us, myself included, we aren't casting our anxieties because we don't ultimately believe that he's caring. I think if we did, I think if we did believe that he was caring, we would be casting our anxieties. I think sometimes we don't cast because we don't believe he cares. Or we don't cast because we don't like his clock. It says that he would exalt us at the proper time and we're like, you know what, God, like I prayed, I kind of waited and uh, man, I don't like your timing. So I'm going to activate on this. I'm going to send the text. I'm going to send the email. I'm going to insert myself into this situation. I'm going to activate and make things happen rather than waiting on you. Now you should be faithful in your work, but you know when you've stepped into like control and you're doing something versus like waiting on God. I think sometimes we don't cast because we don't like his clock. Remember, he says, at the proper time. And so my question for you right now to apply is what are you carrying instead of casting? What anxiousness, what worry, what fear are you carrying rather than casting? It's not yours to carry. Or said otherwise, what are you trying to control versus cast? What situation, right now, let the Lord speak it to your heart and mind. What, 
What situation, what relationship are you being controlling in rather than casting that to him and trusting that in time he will help? This is the value of fully surrendered. Anxieties are cast like, Lord, you saved me. It's so it's all you. I'm fully surrendered. I'm going to trust you with everything, not withholding anything. The opposite of being fully surrendered is to be fully independent. We don't want that. He opposes the proud. H is humble yourself. A, anxieties are cast. R is resist in faith. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, let me dispel some folk theology that has crept into the church. A lot of times people will be like, man, I'm going out of town this weekend, so pray for me because there's a roaring lion seeking to devour. You know Satan's like a lion. Or, hey, I'm going into this situation. It's really hard. We've always had fighting. And, yeah, man, Satan's just after me. He's a roaring lion. We sometimes speak about temptation as that being Satan's roaring lion that he's seeking to devour. That's not the case here. That's not what the verse says. Now, he does do that. He's an adversary. He's a liar. He's a tempter. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. But right here, when he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a luring lion, seeking someone to devour, you're going to see later in that verse, you know your brothers are suffering throughout the world. And then later it says, after you've suffered a little while. So the context is suffering, meaning When you're suffering, like Satan is going to come after you through suffering. Yes, he will do it through temptation, but that's another verse and another action of his. This way here, he's saying he's coming after you through suffering, but not just suffering. There's two things here. It's to incite fear and to inflict suffering. Those are two of his offenses. How can I say incite fear? I'm looking at this verse and like, prowls around like a roaring lion. And always, you know, people preach this passage and it's like everybody goes to animal kingdom because we've seen it. Like we've seen the lion in the savannah going after the gazelle. But you never hear the lion roar when that's happening. The the lion's not like, rawr, gazelle. It, It would run. That's never the case. Instead, it's like, I mean, its ears go down and it's pawing through those tall grasses until it's within reach and then it goes on the chase. That's not what's in view here either. Instead, it says he prowls around like a roaring, roaring lion. Well, roaring alerts everyone to his presence. So why is he roaring? To make us afraid. He wants to incite fear. It says that in Hebrews 12, that he has subjected all of us to slavery, to lifelong fear, fear of death. But that's why Jesus took on flesh to conquer Satan, to set us free from the fear of death. That we know like we can never die because of Jesus. But here he is roaring to incite fear. It's where it says in Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. It says the sluggard says, well, there's a lion in the streets. I'd be killed. And I think in the same way, with the roar of the lion, the spiritual roar, which sounds a lot more like a whisper in your mind, to, keep, to make you a spiritual sluggard. Like, well, man, I can't speak up about my faith at work. Like, you know, think I'm like some kind of fanatic. And, you know, you know all paths lead up the mountain to God, right? So I just, I'll just keep my mouth shut. You know, God loves me and that's okay. I'm not going to bring it up with my family. Or, and I'm not, I'm not going to take a stand in my relationship and break up with the guy 
Because if I did, then I'd be lonely the rest of my life. So I'm just gonna like compromise and live in this sexual sin because, man, I'm afraid if I do or don't, then I'd be, I'd be lonely. The fear, the fear of Satan that he's using as a tool to keep you from doing what you ought to do and be that spiritual sluggard. We don't, we don't listen to him, we resist in faith. And so my question for you to apply is, where are you hearing roars and living in fear? Where is it that right now you're experiencing fear for your faith? Maybe relationships, your health, money, something you ought to do but you're afraid to because of consequences when the scripture's clear on it. But it's not just incite fear, it's devouring, that he would inflict suffering, which is what we're gonna see in the remaining verses. That he inflicts suffering. You see it in the life of Job. He inflicts incredible suffering. We tell our kids like, hey, if a, if a dog, if an if a aggressive dog ever comes towards you, because they can really harm kids. So we've told them this in advance, like you just like, you stand there, do not run, try to get big, be loud, but do not run. If you run, they're gonna think you're prey, they're gonna, it's gonna activate in them like, oh, I'm, I am after this, and, and they'll go after you. So you just stand there, don't even back up. We've, we've been around some dogs before that like, they put their hands up and we're like, just stand there, like don't show them fear. Well, I got curious in this passage, and so I Googled how do you resist a lion attack? <laughs> I had some time on my hands. Kids were down, it was late. And I'm a curious person. You know what it says? That in the natural realm, what you do is you stand your ground. It literally says, do not take a step backwards. Never turn your back. But rather, if you face a lion, you just stand there. And it's exactly what Peter writes by the Spirit in the supernatural realm. And he says, resist him in faith. Resist him. Don't flee. In fact, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. But it says, firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith, which is why the point is resist in faith. And hear me out. It's not resist in your faith, that you're the owner of that faith. It's resist him in the object of your faith. Your faith is in Jesus. He is the one who conquered Satan. So your faith is not in the ownership of my faith, like, oh, I've got such big faith, I can stand against Satan. That's nonsense. Your faith is in the object of your faith, Jesus. He is the means by which you can stand firm. <laughs> we were at TBRM family camp last summer. And you know, they, red against blue and, and this tug of war thing. And I had some like beast guys that clearly spent more time in the gym than me. And I'm like, oh, we are so gonna win this. Like those other dads look like chumps like me, but I got you guys. And so we line up to the tug of war. I don't even know uh, exactly what happened. Before it started, they, they took dish soap and then hosed it down with water. And I truly don't know what happened. I think I blacked out. I don't even know if they said one, two, three, go. All of a sudden, I'm like, whew, legs go out from under me. Then like a 180, and all of a sudden, I'm on the ground contorted, and one of those huge beast guys goes, boom, on my hip. Now I'm getting like dragged across the tarp <laughs> with Gigantor on my hip, and I'm like, 
hey bro, you're on my hip as we're getting like dragged along. I'm like, but I didn't want to tap him too hard because he could hurt me. And I'm like, hey, you're on my hip. And he's like, ah, still thinking he's going to win. I'm like, bro, forget it. I'm like, hey, you're on my hip. He's like, oh, sorry, man, rolls off. The whole reason any of that happened is because my feet were firm. It didn't matter what I was wearing. Like when there was that soap and water, it, it was over no matter how physically strong those dudes were. And it says that we are to stand, stand firm in our faith. Now you go to a parallel passage where you hear about Satan, your enemy, Ephesians chapter six, and Paul writes, and he talks about the armor of God. And you know, if you're ever in a men's Bible study, you're all about the armor of God. You're like, yeah, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, shield of faith, ah! And then, and then you're like, oh, and the, uh, the gospel shoes, whatever that means, I don't know why. It's, it's, like, the, it's like the most unthreatening part of the whole, it's like gospel shoes, what a, like Paul missed a beat, had a bad day. He didn't have a bad day. That's the centrality of all of it. Like the gospel feet are what keep you firm that you would never slip, never be pulled out from your place, but that in Christ, not in your faith, your faith in Christ will keep you to stand firm and keep you from being yanked around by the whims and all the wiles of Satan. But then no matter what he does, if you've got the gospel on your feet, that Jesus lived and died and rose again and you've trusted in him, then Revelation says your adversary, though he accuses you day and night before God, that you overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Like, no, that's the gospel. You're not gonna pull me down, Satan, because I've trusted in the blood of the lamb and I proclaim that I'm his, the word of my testimony, so I've overcome you. Because of my gospel feet, I stand firm in my faith. And then it goes on to say this really strange thing. Knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Well, what good does that do? You know, Laura's got breast cancer and I'm supposed to be like, well, you know, there's persecution in Sudan. Like, what good, what, what good does that do for me? It does a whole lot of good for me. If you ask Laura, and I did, we got these two bookshelves in our bedroom. I'm like, hey, babe, what, what book category do you think we have the most of? And some of you might be like, oh, theology books because you went to seminary. It's not the case. We have books on suffering. Because Laura, having gone through breast cancer and OCD, she's got a whole lot of books on suffering. You know why she's got books on suffering? Because when she's in the suffering, she needs to remember that others have been through suffering and that Jesus has brought them out every time to the other side. And so she's going to read books by Johnny Erickson Tata. And she's going to read books by Elizabeth Elliot. And she's going to read books by Lisa Turquist. And she's going to read books about the saints who have gone before her, who have endured incredible suffering. Because what the scripture is saying right here is that remembrance gives resistance. As you're like, no, Jesus brought them through. He's going to bring me through too. Remembrance brings resistance. That's why the spirit through Peter says, hey, remember, your brothers and sisters throughout the world are suffering the same kinds of things. I just talked to my sister here from Nigeria. She said, Dorothy? Yeah, Dorothy. Well, right now in Nigeria, there's incredible suffering. People are being martyred daily by the Fulani herdsmen and, and other like militant groups who are killing Christians. 
But we remember that this is but a brief and momentary suffering and that Christ is coming and is going to make all things right. We remember our brothers and sisters as they suffer throughout the world. Let me ask you something. Anybody here know who John Landy is? John Landy fans? Anybody? Nobody. I'll tell you why. Who's here to Roger Bannister? Anybody here to Roger Bannister? Yeah, the hands go up. He's the one who broke the four-minute mile barrier. He ran an under-sub four-minute mile. First one to do it. Well, the second one to do it is John Landy. Nobody's heard of John Landy. And after John Landy, 1,663 more people did it, and people are going to continue to do it. Why is that happening? How come for known human history, nobody could break the four-minute barrier until Roger Bannister did, and after Roger did, then a lot of people did? Because he broke a mental, physical barrier, and they saw Roger and like, oh, well, if he can, man, I bet I can. And so it is as we read about others and we know about others who are suffering also throughout the world. This is why Fox's Book of Martyrs, which begins with the apostles and goes all the way through the martyrs of the modern age, is read by Christians throughout the world in every language because you remember and you're emboldened in your faith. It's why I commend to you Tom Doyle's books, Standing in the Fire and Killing Christians, who are Muslim background believers who trust in Jesus, they're persecuted for their faith, and then in Killing Christians, that's a book about their martyrdom. As they say, like, you can kill me. I will not renounce Jesus. And we are emboldened. They're some of my favorite books to read because then when I'm in suffering, I remember others who have gone before and how Jesus sustained them. This would be the value of courageous faith. Here at the church, we value courageous faith and it's not that we are courageous. It's a courageous faith in Jesus, believing that he has the audacity to carry us through every single fire and affliction that Satan throws at us. Humble yourself, H, A, anxieties are cast, R, resist in faith, and finally, D, dominion of God, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. It says suffered for a little while. <laughs> and some of you are like, man, it's not been a little while. That's a typo in my life. It has not been a little while. It's been all my life. A little while? I'll tell you about Fanny Crosby. Some of you may be familiar with her name. Fanny Crosby was um, born into a family just near New York City in the 1800s. She was born in 1820. And she had um, impaired vision as a little girl, as a child, and this traveling charlatan, hoax, quack doctor comes through and was like, oh, I can, I can heal your daughter if you pay me this money. Here's what you need to do. Take some hot mustard, make a poultice, and keep it over her eyes. Well, that mustard ate through her optic nerve, and she was blind for the rest of her life. Fanny never held resentment towards the doctor nor towards her parents, but instead went on to pen 8,000 hymns. 8,000. That's 100 for every year of her life. And then later in life, she said this, after she had suffered for a little while, a little while being her entire life, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. She thanked him. 
If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Fanny, who suffered a little while, and I'm mindful right now of our deaf and hard of hearing friends right over to my right, and the affliction that they're suffering, and it may not feel like a little while as it lasts their entire life, and yet God says the God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And so he is at work all the time. It says, interestingly, the God of all grace. God of all grace. Why that appellation, that title? Well, here's why, I think. Because every other religion, every other false religion, purports the God of all works, little g. The God of all works. You work your way to me. You better be good. You're good, better outweigh your bad And maybe then you would reach me. Maybe you'd be absorbed after reincarnated into multiple iterations of self trying to improve generation after generation. Then maybe you would be absorbed into Brahman nonsense. The God of all works is every other religion. And Christianity alone is they're the God of all grace. Grace, it's been said, is God's riches at Christ's expense. I would say it's God's redemption at Christ's expense. He has redeemed you, though you had no merit of your own. He has rescued you, ransomed you by his grace. He's the God of all grace, meaning there is no grace outside of him. Every good and perfect gift coming from the Father. He is the God of all grace, not the God of all works. And hear me, there's people here today who who don't know this God of all grace. You're dead in your sin. Man, I'm a recovering alcoholic. That's who I used to be. I was a drunk until the age of 30. And what this means is that Jesus, God's son, suffered for you. Death upon the cross, raised again from the dead. He suffered for you if you place your faith in him so that you will not have to suffer eternally in a very real place called hell, in eternal torment separated from everything good and the goodness and presence of God. That's the good news, that today you could be saved. You could pass by the suffering that awaits because Jesus took your suffering upon the cross. He is the God of all grace. Grace began this, grace will continue it, and grace will one day complete it. Let me tell you, this this book, this Bible, is one quarter prophecy. A quarter of it, 25% or more, is prophecy. And right here in 1 Peter, as I'm reading and thinking about it, I'm like, dude, that's a prophecy. There is a prophecy in the scriptures for every single person who is in Christ, which is so powerful. Like, really? There's a prophecy for me? There were all these prophecies about Jesus. Here's a prophecy for you by God himself. He says that he has called you, if he has called you, then he himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. I mean, that's incredible. No matter what suffering comes upon you in your life, there is a prophetic word right here that the God who has called you will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will will have the final word upon your life, and it is good. And how can this be trusted? How can we trust God with all of this? It says, because to him be the dominion. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. Dominion, this theological term that means might, strength, and power. It is a royal word about a reign of a king so that no matter what happens in this life, he's sovereign over it all, that nothing happens that hasn't first passed through his sovereign hand and you humbly would be under his mighty hand. He is a king and he reigns. No matter what comes upon our life, when life is hard, remember, humble yourself. Anxieties are cast. Resist in faith and dominion of God. I'm going to ask the team to bring the lights down because I want to give you a little time and space to reflect and to pray, maybe journal. But the reason why is because I was reading recently in Isaiah, I wanted, I wanted to learn more about Hezekiah and like what happened that he would write those words that he did in chapter 38. And so I, I go backwards and I'm in Isaiah 37 and I come across this passage and it like stopped me in my tracks. I know I've read it before. It was already underlined, but now it got circled and I wrote it in all caps at the top of my page because I was like, man, I never want to forget that. So Hezekiah is a small king of a small nation, nation of Judah. They're surrounded by the world's superpower, the Assyrians. They were a crazy army that would impale their victims to create terror in the land, that if you ever resist us, that's, what, that's what's going to come for you. They send their emissary to Hezekiah, and they're like, hey, <laughs> we've surrounded you, so you might as well just surrender, and we might spare your life. So take our terms. And Hezekiah hears him out, goes into his chamber, and he prays. And then Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says these words. Verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And what he goes on to say, God's like, hey, I'm going to crush him. He's nothing. I got you. I got you. And then it says, an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 of their army and the rest just like fled and Judah remained. But what struck me in that passage, what stood out to me that I wrote in all caps at the top of my page is this. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed, because you've prayed. Hezekiah humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and trusted in God that at the proper time he would exalt him and he cast all of his anxieties upon him. He resisted in the faith knowing that God had dominion. And so right now, with time and space, be with God, cast anxieties, confess fears, ask him for more faith to resist as you look to Jesus. And then we'll come back together and sing.
God, as every anxiety has been cast upon you because you care for us, take that weight from us. And when we try to pick it back up again, remind us that worry is the symptom and prayer is the prescription. And Lord, would you silence the fears? Help us to resist in faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what suffering comes upon us. And Lord, may we know that yours is the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, in this passage, it says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I sat there and looking at those words, it says, your your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Prowls like a roaring lion. Like a lion. (laughs) Like a lion. But there is one who is not like a lion, but that is a lion, the Lion of Judah. And as Lewis said, he's not safe, but he's good. And he's conquered. Satan's a counterfeiter. He mimics, he's a glory thief. And he is no lion, he's like a lion. But we have trusted in one who is the lion. And so in Revelation chapter five, verse five, it says at the end of the story, after all the suffering, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. Stand to your feet and sing to the Lion of Judah who has conquered.